You are listening to the politicalbetting.com Polling Matters podcast. My name is Kieran Pedley. Well, one of the things we like to do on this show, um, beyond follow the ebb and flow of Westminster politics and what's going on with the main parties, is to try and look at some of the underlying data that explains the, the trends going on in our society more generally, but also that how they manifest themselves um, politically. And um, related to that, I guess one of the best things about doing this podcast over the years is I've been able to um, meet lots of different people uh, and um, find out about people's work that I maybe wasn't familiar with um, before starting the show. And so today's episode is, is more in that vein, really. Um, I spoke to um, Paula Surridge from the University of Bristol. Now, Paula is a political sociologist at Bristol, and she's interested in public opinion, um, aren't we all? Uh, but she's uh, particularly interested in sort of some of the underlying dynamics uh, that explain the Brexit vote, um, but also the trends in voting intention that are going on. Um, and she has a particular focus on things like uh, social class and education, and she'll explain that on this episode um, better than I can. But um, this week's episode was um, me discussing uh, some of these core trends um, with Paula and how they're shaping our politics, but also um, what it means for um, the real world, uh, real world consequences, real life consequences for the political parties at Westminster too. So we talked a bit about how class and education and other things are shaping our politics. We talked about what that means for the Labour Party, you know, should it offer a second referendum on Brexit, should it not? Um, how effective is this fudge going to be um, that they seem to have done this week uh, in the future? And we also talked about, you know, this idea of new political parties, what groups feel politically homeless, uh, which ones less so, and, and how might that manifest itself uh, in the future uh, too. And we also ha- took time for some listener questions. We had a host of listener questions this week uh, from people that were interested in some of these themes. So it was a wide-ranging conversation that both that did two things. One was to look at the, the wider trends shaping our politics, but also trying to unpick how they might manifest themselves in real-world Westminster terms in the future. So it was a great discussion. Delighted to be joined uh, by Paula this week because we've been trying to get this in the diary for a little while. All my fault that uh, that we haven't. Um, so I started off uh, this week's episode um, by asking Paula to explain a bit about her work, and then we went on to talk about some of those topics I've just mentioned. So I'm here with Paula Surridge. Paula, welcome uh, finally to Polling Matters. Hi, very, very nice to be with you. Um, we've been trying to arrange this in the diary for a, a few, a couple, well, it feels like a couple of months. But um, Paula, no, very glad to have you on. Um, I guess it would be good for people that maybe are less familiar with your work if maybe you briefly sort of introduced yourself and told us a bit about the work you've been doing in sort of polling and elections and that sort of thing. Sure. So um, I'm an academic um, and I work in what I describe as the gap between politics and sociology. So some days I'm a political scientist, some days I'm a sociologist. And I've been interested in the relationship between values and voting um, and how that all connects to social divisions for a really long time. Um, but before night, before um, 2016, no one else was. It was quite seen as quite a niche, quite a niche interest. Um, but obviously, the the referendum has really galvanised people into thinking much more about these things, and and as a result, um, my work's become much more relevant I suppose um, I've moved out moved out of the niche a little bit so with 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 brexit I mean let's, let's talk a bit about that I mean what, what sort of value decisions do you think are going into um, the decision voters made in 2016 I mean what, how is that divide manifesting itself in the brexit vote so long before long before 2016 I was interested in um, the kind of second dimension of politics some people call it cultural some people call it social some people call it open closed um nobody else really was it was very much the era of you know it's the economy and the leaders and nothing else much matters 
Um, but Brexit really, really kind of blew that open in the it's that second dimension, the social, cultural dimension that really connects with Brexit vote and the kind of old-fashioned economic left-right dimension doesn't. Um, so, so in that sense, the work I've I've always been interested in, in terms of how education relates to that dimension has just become really, really important in trying to understand understand these divisions and provide a kind of counter accounted to lots of the very first early takes on Brexit, which were all driven by the aggregate level data, um, which didn't have the kinds of things like education in them, because most of the polling organizations don't ask about it, um, and be able to kind of push back a little bit against some of those early takes and say, actually, when you look at education, age isn't as important as it first appears and things like that. So let's let's talk a bit about that before we get on to some of the, the more recent things. So Education, yeah, I mean it's true. I mean, when I look at polling cross breaks and things like that, it, there doesn't yeah. seem to be a lot around the graduate non graduate split. I mean, is it, it actually is that the only split we're interested in? I mean, talk a bit about what okay, role so education is playing in, in, in this. All. Yeah, in terms of education, the the key split is the graduate non graduate split. Um, you do get a small gradient with kind of people that just have A levels, but lots of that is explained by the fact that they're actually current students and eventually they will become. Um, graduates. So the key divide is definitely between those that have experienced higher education and those who haven't. And obviously over the last 20 years, the proportion of the electorate falling into that category has hugely expanded. Um, the British Social Attitudes series, I've done some estimates from that, and it looks like it's gone from about 7% of the electorate 30 years ago to a quarter of the electorate now. And obviously it's growing all the time because those leaving leaving the electorate are less likely to have degrees and those joining are more likely to. So it's something that's increasing. And as a result, it becomes really much more important for understanding politics. It's it's not a big consequence if only 5% of people have degrees. When a quarter of the electorate have degrees, it becomes much more much more important to understand their behaviour and, and their values as a group. So, so how are graduates, non-graduates, um, how are the views of them that those two the two groups differing and how's that manifesting itself politically obviously brexit's one way isn't it brexit's one way yeah i mean it's 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 their their education doesn't really distinguish between people on the kind of traditional economic issues so in things like nationalization redistribution those kinds of issues education doesn't play much of a role there old-fashioned class or income measures much much more important in that respect um, but where it really matters is on as I said, this kind of open clothes second dimension, I usually talk about it as liberal authoritarian, where um, those with degrees are very much towards the liberal end of that scale. So that scale comprises things like attitudes to censorship, the death penalty, um, tolerance to um, different lifestyles, those, those kinds of issues. And those with degrees very, very much on the liberal end of that scale, those without much more likely to be towards the authoritarian end of that scale. And even though those issues have, on the face of it, nothing to do with Brexit, none of those are, are issues that you would immediately associate with the European Union, that scale strongly predicts whether or not somebody was a Leave or Remain voter at the referendum. How does this How does this tie in with age? Because, I mean, one of the things that... I mean, I, I'll be guilty of this myself, I think. One of the things that people seem to be internalising is this idea that we're moving away from a society that's driven by socioeconomic class, uh, in terms of politically speaking, at least in terms of you know predicting people's votes, and we're moving towards a society which is much more based around age. But you mentioned at the beginning that you think actually this, this education um, 
is it more important than age? I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I mean, how, no, how, so how it, does this it, it relate to age? It depends on the question. Yeah. <laughs> it really depends on the question. So at, if you're trying to explain referendum voting, education is more important than age if you, if you actually do kind of modeling, which allows for a whole bunch of control variables. Um, but if you're trying to explain general election voting in 2017, both are important, but age is actually more important than um, education to explain that vote. So it depends on the question that you're asking, and it's not a simple education always trumps age or age always trumps class. It really depends on, on what you're trying to address. And is there, is, there, it, sorry, is there some overlap as well? Because, I mean, presumably the older age groups are less likely to be graduates just because of what you described earlier. So is, is there yes. a bit of an overlap? So, so that's why you get... Um, some misleading patterns sometimes in the polling. They routinely provide crossbakes by age, but not by education. Um, so you're conflating the two when you look at one or the other. Um, and obviously, in, in our more academic work, we control for both, so you can try and factor out the effect of one rather than the other mm. um, to see which is the more important at any for any particular issue. I think it's actually quite um, an important point you're raising there, because... When I look at, I mean, I'm looking at crossbreaks all the time in the public polling that's published, and it's very easy to get that age split. And you know, journalists will look at the age split and go, "Oh, look at this. This is really important." But it's very uncommon to have education, as you mentioned. But also, just thinking yeah. uh, as an aside, um, sort of household tenure as well, like so, renters yeah. versus mortgage owners. You don't. I mean, I think Ipsos Mori do have that in their breaks. I'm sure others do, but it's often buried in there somewhere. And that means that we almost focus on the age bit, but we don't focus on um, education that you've mentioned, but also housing as much, do we? And that, that sort of frames how political journalists talk about our politics. Yeah, definitely. The fact that, that we don't... And, and, it, and it really frames the um, initial kind of hot takes that come out, if you like. So the narrative that developed immediately after the referendum was about age and kind of left behind places because that was what we had data for right at that moment. And similarly, after um, the general election, we got lots of talking about, about age and so on without looking at the other breaks because that was the data that was immediately available. Um, so, for example, the youth quake, we yeah. get that narrative appear very, very quickly because we have that data very, very quickly. And we don't have the detailed survey data till much later when these narratives have already taken hold. I mean, beware snap judgments, I guess, is the lesson there. But let's move on to um, some of the more um, recent events that are going on and try and, I guess, see how we can apply some of this to that. So um, this week we've had a Labour Party conference, obviously, so I guess it's a good place to start. Now, there's been an intense debate within Labour this week about whether or not there should be a, a second referendum or, or people's vote <laughs> or whatever whatever you want to call it. And yeah, it's confusing enough for people like me that follow it religiously, let alone others, I imagine. Um, it seems to change by the minute, doesn't it? <laughs> it does. So we're not going to state what current policy is because it might change by the time we <laughs> by the time we publish this. But I mean, what what do you think the I mean, what's what does the data say around this in your in your opinion? I mean, do you think there's? I guess that the key strategic question, if you're a Labour Party person, is do you think it's um, better for them to offer a, a second referendum or not based on their coalition? I mean, do, does your does your analysis have any kind of uh, findings or, or view on that? Yeah. So. I think this is a really tricky question, and it's, um, it is a question of strategy. So thinking about, well, what would happen if Labour came out completely in favour of a second referendum? Um, what would happen? And I think that side of it is pr coming out and offering a second referendum is, I think, less risky in the short term. 
because many of the kind of natural Labour Leave voters have already left the party. So they weren't voting for the party in 2017. Actually, lots of them weren't voting at all in 2017. Um, it's a really interesting snippet from analysis that in 2017, you can predict turnout from people's values. You've never been able to do that before. Values usually haven't connected with turnout. And in 2017, they do. Um, so in that sense, in the short term, I think there's less danger backing a second referendum. I think if you were to rule it out, the people that are in, you know, the kind of remaining um, liberal end of the party have got lots of other options in terms of where they can go. Um, the, the, the Lib Dems are kind of there waiting. Many of these groups have already voted Lib Dem in the past. Lots of them voted Lib Dem in 2010. Um, the younger voters are starting to forget a little bit about kind of the Lib Dems and the coalition. So, so I think there are um, more places for that Remain vote to go. And obviously in Scotland, and then you've got the SNP as well. And, and many of the seats that Labour needs to win are in Scotland. So actually the dynamics of that there are really important strategically. I think though that the, the real danger in that is that we start to see an even bigger failure in kind of representation of those groups than we have. Um, and so in the longer term, in terms of winning back any of those kind of old Labour voters, it would become a really big problem. And I think I, I've written a little bit about this, that the, the dilemma that, that Labour face is that if you look at their kind of target seats, the ones they need to win are quite um, remaining in many respects. Lots of them, as I said, are in Scotland. But they've also got marginal seats that they need to hold on to. The seats that Labour need to hold on to, the marginals where um, somebody's closing on on them, are much more levy. Um, and by that I mean they tend to be a little bit older, um, more likely to be in England with people um, with more um, white British voters um, in those constituencies. So there's a real tension there between pushing ahead with the strategy to try and gain new seats, but also the need to hold on to the seats that they already have. Sure. And that's probably where a lot of this um, so-called strategic ambiguity comes from, this idea that, well, if we stay on the fence long enough, and I don't, I don't mean that in a derogatory way um, for listeners' benefit, you know, I guess the strategy is if we stay on the fence long enough, then we can hold this coalition together. But you make an interesting point about Scotland because we often don't see it, and I think this is a very London-Westminster uh, problem. We often don't don't really look at Scotland that often unless it's really in the headlines. And as you say, there's lots of um, Labour target seats there. Um, one of the one of the other questions that keeps coming up is this talk of a split within the Labour Party itself and the prospect of a, a new uh, quote-unquote centrist party. I saw Andrew Grice from The Independent had a piece yesterday talking about Tony Blair leading such a party, which seems a, a staggering lack of self-awareness there, if that's true, but I, I'm sure he won't. <laughs> uh, but anyway, leaving that to one side, this idea of a sort of centrist, presumably pro-Remain, pro-EU party, I mean, where, where, where do you stand on this? Because it keeps coming up, and I'm never clear whether this is something that's just in the minds of political correspondents in Westminster or if there is genuine demand from it uh, for it from the politically homeless. I mean, does your analysis see anything in that? Yeah, so I think some of it is in the mind of the of the of the Westminster bubble, not necessarily just the correspondence, but but the, the kind of London bubble generally. I think there is demand for a new party. So we've seen in the past um, relatively large proportions voting UKIP and the Lib Dems in 2010. But I find this language around centrism really unhelpful because because I think about the political sphere as being 
ultimately at least two-dimensional. There isn't an, just a single centre. And I think that in terms of homeless voters, they come in two flavours, and it isn't clear to me that they would both vote for the same new party. So there's a kind of Corbyn sceptic group that are left-wing but also very liberal, pro-Romaine, and to me they're already well-served by the Lib Dems and the Greens. Many of them voted Lib Dem and Green in the past. Um, and then you've got this kind of left-wing traditional Labour voters, but they are, rather than calling them authoritarian, I think maybe liberal sceptic might be a better way of describing them, who are not going to, they're not particularly centrist, actually. They are not in the middle of, of either distribution. They're to the left on this kind of old-fashioned economic dimension, but towards the non-liberal end of, of the social dimension. And they're the group that feel most politically homeless. They didn't turn out in 2017. Um, they're the group that say they don't feel represented by um, the kind of current offerings when, when they're asked those kinds of questions in surveys. And I, I can't see them voting for anything that brands itself as pro-Romain and centrist. So just just to get, I'm not saying these are UKIP voters necessarily, but just to sort of get this clear in my head. So are we talking about voters that were supposed to be attracted to the UKIP party of Paul Nuttall? I mean, leaving him aside, <clears throat> this idea of the uh, kind of left-wing interventionist on the economy, but maybe, maybe left-wing is the wrong phrase, but liberal on the economy, but then more authoritarian, as you describe it, on issues presumably around culture and immigration and so on. Is that, is that what yeah. we're whether it's UKIP they're, or not, is that what we're talking about? Yeah, they're the kind of voters we're talking about. They are um, particularly in favour of things like nationalisation. If you ask them about nationalising the railways, you get huge proportions saying that they want to nationalise the railways. But they're also um, anti-immigration, um, pro-death penalty, though, you know, the kind of to go back to the kind of Blair tough on crime, tough on the causes of crime kind of thing, that actually does capture these voters quite well. And do we know who they're voting for at the moment? I mean, you said a lot of them aren't voting, but presumably... A lot we're... of them aren't voting. Um, about, of those that voted, um, it's about a third voted Conservative. Um, and Labour have lost, lost support in that, in right. that group um, since 97. They have been moving... Um, to UKIP, to the Conservatives, and also to not voting. Um, in quite, and, and they're a group that should vote in, in many respects because they tend to be older, um, and we know that turnout's related to age. So, so they ought to be people that do turn out, um, but in, in 2017 they didn't. But presumably um, sort of Corbyn's Labour Party would hold at least some degree of attraction to, for them, wouldn't it? I mean, with, with the nationalisation you mentioned and... Yeah, so I think I think in that sense, and, and I said this before the election, that holding on to some of that vote through these kind of um, left-wing economic policies works, but as soon as the lens is, is on to social issues, um, and so as soon as, it on, as soon as it's on foreign policy, um, on kind of policy around trans rights and things like that, those voters are nowhere near to not even close to the to the same kind of page as the party on those issues very much turned off by that i mean we mentioned the lib dems earlier this is something that um we, we had a podcast a couple of episodes ago with mark pack from the lib, lib dem yeah. voice and uh you know they were, he was talking about their prospects i mean they do seem to be creeping up in the polls a bit don't they i mean i'm not sure how much uh but then I'm not sure how much we should um, pay attention to that because, I mean, we were talking off air, I think, when we were setting this up about voting intention polling. It's uh, it's a tricky beast at this stage of the parliament, isn't it? It is. 
But they, the Lib Dem vote is creeping up, and I still think there's potential in that Lib Dem vote. Um, the kinds of the kinds of voters that they've attracted in the past are the really well-educated pro-Remain voters, um, and I think that is the the kind of big unknown at the moment is is that should the Labour Party ever clarify its position to one that the pro-Remain groups don't like, there is definitely potential there for them to move to the Lib Dems. I mean, they deserted the Lib Dems when they didn't like what the Lib Dems did um, in terms of um, tuition fees and the coalition government. But I think there's also potential for them to go back there um, should, should Labour do things they don't like. That'd be music to the Liberal Democrats' ears that are listening to this. Um, yeah, I mean, one of the things I'm watching really closely in the polling is where where um, the pollsters actually give education breaks, and I think it's just BMG and Salvation that do that. I might be wrong. Um, I'm watching very closely the degree break for the Lib Dems, because that's where you'll see the movement. You won't see it across the board. You'll see it in that highly educated group. And given given first past the post, I suppose if they're able to concentrate that vote in certain places, then that can have dividends for uh, votes to seats that maybe other parties won't have as easily. Yeah, definitely, because actually those 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 highly educated voters are concentrated in kind of the cities around London, but also Manchester, Bristol, those kinds of places. So, okay, I mean, I want to take some uh, questions from uh, listeners in in a moment, but I mean, is, is there anything else on voting intention you think we should be looking for? I think you were talking about don't knows before, weren't you? Yeah, absolutely. So one of the big things I think we should be keeping an eye out on voting intention is the patterns of don't knows. Most of the pollsters, understandably, just kind of ditch their don't knows, and you do have to dig a little bit to find them in the cross breaks. Um, but I was watching those quite closely before 2017, and you could see the kind of huge amount of ex-Labour voters in the don't knows at the start of the campaign but gradually that gets squeezed down and, and is a, a substantial part of the rise of Labour over the campaign is that squeezing down of the don't knows who eventually end up um, voting Labour and at the moment we're seeing similar patterns so we got you always get slightly higher numbers of um, women saying don't know than men but at the moment it's riding at over one in five getting to up to a quarter of women saying they don't know how they'll vote on those vote intention polls, which is a huge proportion of the electorate. And that can be really um, important, right, if we think that women might skew a certain way, like might skew Labour, let's say, for example. And this is something yeah, I, I would... and also um, women have skewed Lib Dem in the past as well. Um, so it's another kind of factor in there that there are voters there that I think are a bit more volatile. Um, that the that the vote intention poll that looks kind of completely fixed at a tie forever um, isn't picking up. And presumably on the issue of Brexit itself, I, I don't I don't know whether there's a, a large chunk of women that don't know on the question of a second referendum or the question of leave versus remain. Yeah. But yeah. I mean, presumably so, the same principle applies, right? If women are saying don't know, then maybe the uh, the current Brexit polling, whether it's a second referendum or on the issue itself, could be skewed. Absolutely, yeah. Even prior to the referendum. Um, taking out the don't knows gave you different patterns of results to leaving the don't knows in. Um, it, we can't just assume that the pattern of don't know is random because it isn't. It, it affects different groups differentially. Okay, well let's let's finish with some questions uh, from listeners. We had a couple of different ones uh, coming in, so um, big thanks to listeners that did send in their questions. Uh, please keep them coming for the podcast generally. So uh, Peter Gerard um, comes in and says. 
Is it true that progressively at each UK general election since 1964, more and more people considered voting for more than one party and that more and more people uh, made their choice near the election date? If so, is is the campaign everything? Um, dot, 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 TV debate crucial. So uh, I suppose the question here is really about the, the importance of the campaign on a general election, because the conventional wisdom was always that, well, the campaign doesn't really matter, does it? But I think 2017 certainly uh, showed that one up. Yeah, so 2017, it partly goes back to what I was just saying about the don't knows. And I think what's important to remember is that 2017 was a sort of surprise election, I think that's fair to say. Yeah. Um, so the electorate weren't on an election footing. We talk about the parties always been on an election footing, but the electorate weren't. So people hadn't been having conversations and thinking about how they might vote because they weren't expecting to be asked. Um, so, lots of, so in that sense, there was more volatility there because people hadn't made up their minds. Um, it is true, I think, that people are becoming, well, it's definitely true that people have been becoming less connected to parties. So there's very good evidence from the election studies that um, we've seen a weakening of party alignment, people more likely to say they don't identify with any party, those kinds of processes. Although some evidence that those processes um, were going, starting to either bottom out or start going, even re returning to uh, up a little bit in 2015 and 2017. Um, in terms of considering voting for more than one party, that depends a little bit on where people are located and how much choice there is actually on, on offer. And um, so for the voters I've been talking about, those kind of very liberal pro-Remain voters, there's quite a lot of parties in that space. You've got Labour, you've got the Lib Dems, you've got the Greens, SNP in Scotland. They've got quite a lot of choice. So yes, they're likely to consider voting for more than one party. For some of the other voters towards the centre and the right of, the, of that um, left-right dimension, there's a bit less choice. And actually, with the collapse of UKIP, you could almost argue there's no choice. So if they are a more natural conservative voter, there's less, they're less likely to have considered voting for more than one party because there's simply less choice of party that represents that position. Mm, it's probably something for the Conservative Party to grasp as they're strategising um, moving forward. Um, another question from uh, Joe Whitaker. Thanks, Joe. Uh, is there any science on what the Americans would call a convention bump uh, in the UK? It seems that the excellent Lib Dem polling happened to coincide with a lot of activists getting on TV and saying how great they all are. So, yeah, I mean, we mentioned earlier, didn't we, that Lib Dems are creeping mm. up in the polls. I mean, that could be around their uh, conference, but then I, I do wonder how much people pay attention. I mean, what, do you have a view on that? And convention so bumps generally? Yeah, well, the, the Lib Dem rise seems to have been occurring over a much longer period. Um, and I don't think most people aren't paying that close attention. Um, I dare say if you were going off and did a, you know, a few quick questions on most high streets, you know, when was the last Lib Dem conference, things like that, I don't think people would know. Um, so I don't think there's strong evidence of that, of that kind of bounce effect. What there has been evidence of in the past is when we get to the election campaign and you get the rules about balanced coverage kicking in, that the Lib Dem coverage during campaigns can can give them a bit of a boost. Um, but conference itself, I'm a bit less convinced by. Mm. And then uh, the final question from the listeners uh, from Anthony. Uh, thanks, Anthony. Uh, said, did the uh, Brexit referendum strengthen or weaken the extent to which class identity matters to people in the UK? And is there any evidence uh, whether which uh, whether people's willingness to identify as Remainers slash Brexiters is fading or being reinforced, uh, um, reinforced? Sorry, as uh, Article 50 continues. 
I hope these aren't silly questions. There are no silly questions on uh, polling matters, Anthony, or at least the ones I read out. Um, but yeah, so Try not to give for the answers <laughs> as well. <laughs> Absolutely. So I, I guess class and then you know the the, the identity of Remainers and, and, and Brexiters is, is all in there. Yeah, so, so class identity is something I've been really interested in in the past. Um, and here I mean the, the class that somebody will say they are when you ask them rather than the class that a pollster would allocate somebody to. Um, and in 2015 in particular, um, working class identity was predicted UKIP voting, predicted UKIP support in 2015, um, and didn't predict Labour support, which was quite surprising to, to those of us kind of following class politics. You would have expected those that identified working class to be more likely to support Labour. Um, whether the referendums had any big effect on that, I'm less sure. Um, I think the kind of decline of UKIP, which you could argue is as a result of the referendum, it will have an impact on that because those voters um, are more politically homeless now than they were before. Um, but the referendum itself is not primarily connected to class-based identities and so therefore um, hasn't kind of reinforced or undermined them. In terms of kind of remain identity, leave identity, there's some really good data on this on the British Election Study Survey. I haven't had a chance to look at it recently because the newest wave's only been out about 10 days. Um, but what that tended to show previously was that remain was quite a strong identity for some groups, but leave less so. Um, and I think that is likely to have continued. I have to look at the data and I may be proved wrong. And it may be this was a silly answer after all. Um, but I think that the process and the, the kind of ongoing campaign for, for a people's vote and so on is strengthening remain identity, but perhaps not leave identity in quite the same way. Um, and so... One of the one of the challenges, going back to the first question, I suppose, is is around the fact that the Remain voters who are in favour of a second referendum are quite vocal about that, whereas the Leave voters who are not are starting to turn their attention more to other issues actually, because because they sort of feel their agenda's been been satisfied to some extent. Sure, because they won, I suppose. Here, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm obviously talking here about the electorate very broadly and not the kind of top of the parties and, and people strategizing around these things and i guess if you go full circle in our conversation it does make you wonder then whether i mean i'm not saying it's going to be the 48 percent that voted remain but if there is this strong remain identity identity that sort of um uh, coalesces in the future then that there is going to be a a political appetite for political representation within that group isn't there one way definitely. or another yeah definitely and, I, and i've said i've said repeatedly that i do think that there is the potential there for the lib dems to pick up some of that vote. I mean, I don't think they're going to pick up the 48%, um, but I think there is potential there for, for them to get back up to the sorts of polling that they were that they were achieving in 2005 and 2010. Well, all fascinating stuff, Paula. Um, uh, thanks for your time. I mean, where can people find your work if they're interested in uh, finding out more about some of this stuff? So um, my Medium account is probably the best place because I put my blogs up there. It's a lot easier to get things out quickly that way. Um, but also I do tend to use Twitter a lot to get out little bits of data rather than when I find them. So, yeah, follow me there to, to pick up that. Excellent. Well, Paula Surridge, uh, thank you very much for your time. That's, that's great. Thank you. Enjoyed it. 
So that was Paula Surridge from the University of Bristol. Big thanks to Paula for joining me on this week's um, Polling Matters uh, podcast. Lots to chew over there as we look at how our politics in this country might um, might change in the future and might evolve from where we are. Um, one thing that really stood out for me there was this discussion around Scotland and, and you know, how Labour needs um, has you know, fertile ground to improve there potentially. Um, I don't think there's a conspiracy here, but I think it is true to be. To, I think people in Scotland do complain about this rightly. It is true that you know we don't think about Scotland too much in Westminster. It doesn't get a lot of consistent attention when people are talking about Leave voters, Remain voters, and those political dynamics. They may be missing that added layer. Uh, of Scotland and the unique politics that um, takes place there. Um, on this podcast, we've been talking about Northern Ireland a fair bit because of its importance in the um, the Brexit negotiations and obviously the DUP um, sort of propping up Theresa May's government, a you know, very important place. Um, but maybe we should be talking a bit more about Scotland, and that's something I'm going to be looking to do uh, in, in the coming weeks uh, uh, on this on this show. Paula also had a lot to say about education and uh, and class, of course, and uh, you know, really important dynamics. And I definitely think there is something in the fact that pollsters tend to focus or uh, on on the age breaks in the in the story that we're telling about the dynamics in our politics at the moment. Less so on some of those other things uh, like education in particular, and maybe that's something we need to be focusing on uh, more in the future. But I, I think the, the the final, the big takeaway for me, if you like, this week was around this. This idea that the most politically homeless, if you like, are these uh, sort of liberal on the economy and authoritarian on, on sort of social issues, uh, the grouping, and you know how that's going to manifest itself in the future is going to be interesting. Maybe it maybe it won't in a new political party. Maybe it's going to be one of those things that just permeates across politics in a very kind of haphazard way, um, or maybe there are ways that um, you know the, the two main political parties can look to capitalise on that to their benefit. I mean, I think both of the two main parties, Labour and the Conservatives, have offerings uh, to that group in different areas. But, you know, how, how they can um, try and keep those voters in the future is going to be a sort of fascinating watch. And Paula did also talk about, I guess, the final point I would make about the Liberal Democrats. And uh, this is something that is topical for polling matters because we had a, an episode last week, as I mentioned uh, in our discussion there, um, with Mark Pack um, from Lib Dem Newswire on the Lib Dems. You know, they are creeping up in the opinion polls. And I think Leo Brassi, um, you know, fellow podcaster, um, has been mentioned in this too. It, you know, I'm always a bit cautious about overreading um, voting intention polls, particularly at this stage of the parliament. It could be noise. But the more the Lib Dems continue to perform well in polls, um, the more attention they're going to get. And, you know, that attention is definitely something they've been struggling uh, for in the recent past. But anyway, lots to chew over. Hope you enjoyed um, Hope you enjoyed this week's episode. Um, you know, do give us your feedback. And if you like what you hear, as I always say, please do share our episodes on social media. Give us a like or a positive comment or rating on iTunes or other apps. Anything you can do to uh, share the podcast does help um, to increase our audience and... Uh, expand our listener base and that's very much appreciated um but for now thanks for listening and stay tuned for more polling matters episodes in the coming weeks